We read from three portions of Holy Scripture tonight, beginning in John chapter 18, verse 12. Focus of the sermon tonight is the history of Jesus' trials. And the sermon is going to cover what is really several sermons worth of material. Jesus' three trials. So our focus is going to be on the big picture. We can't possibly go into all of the details. But my intention with the three scripture readings is to help us see what happened after Jesus was arrested in its chronological order. And So we begin with the Gospel of John, which tells us the first thing that happened after Jesus was arrested. Then we'll move to the Gospel of Matthew and then to our text in Luke 22 and 23. So let's begin our scripture reading at John 18, verses 12 through 14, and then we'll jump down to verse 19. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. What follows then is the history of Peter's denial of Jesus. We pass over that to verse 19, which continues the history of Jesus' trial. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, Bear witness of the evil, but if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. One thing to note in verse 24 there, now Annas had sent, would better be translated Annas sent. The idea is that from Annas, Jesus is now brought before Caiaphas. And now we read about that. We turn to Matthew 26, beginning at verse 57. We'll read Matthew 26, 57 through 68. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed after him afar off unto the high priest's palace, and went in, and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses, and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then, they did, then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, 
Who is he that smote thee? Now we turn to our text in Luke chapter 22 and 23, which records Luke's brief account of Jesus' trial before the Jewish leaders, as well as his trial before Herod and then Pontius Pilate. And so our text will be Luke 22, verses 66, through chapter 23, verse 25. We'll read that portion now. Beginning at Luke 22, verse 66. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who, for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder, was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired but he delivered Jesus to their will. We end our scripture readings at this point. These scripture readings take us back to what Jesus called the hour of the powers of darkness. That definite period of time that God had ordained 
for the seeming victory of the powers of darkness, when Christ would willingly self-surrender and give himself into their hands to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be beaten, and ultimately to be crucified and slain. The hour when it would appear that darkness, evil, Satan, would triumph. But that hour in which, by the glorious design of God, the Christ would emerge victorious. We come back to that hour of the power of darkness. Last time we saw Jesus' arrest, and how he was taken by the armed band in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now the scripture passages bring us to what happens next after Jesus' arrest. Evil did not sleep, but evil took swift action, having Jesus in their clutches. His enemies rush to bring him to trial. Not a fair trial. Not so that justice may be done but so that under pretense of right, they may rid themselves of the enemy they hate so much. None other than the Christ, the Son of God in our flesh. And what unfolds in the next section of the gospel history is the most amazing injustice, the most astonishing injustice that has ever been perpetrated on the face of this earth. The perfect man. The Son of God, innocently condemned to death by everyone. By the church of the day, represented by her leaders, the Sanhedrin. By the king of Galilee and the surrounding area, Herod. By the Roman Empire itself, through its representative, the governor Pontius Pilate. And by the popular vote of the people of Jerusalem. The whole world would unite to condemn the Christ of God, the perfect man, the sinless Savior. And this astonishing injustice would unfold in a triad of trials, which is set before us in the history tonight. The whole world would be faced with the question, what will you do with the Christ? And the whole world would say, kill him. Christ would be innocently condemned to death for our salvation. The salvation of guilty sinners such as you and I so that the verdict concerning us in the courtroom of God might be very different than what we see here fall upon the perfect Christ. Jesus goes to condemnation and to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God and brought to everlasting life. So let us consider this next part of the gospel history of the Passion Week, the last part before the cross. Let's consider it under the theme, Christ innocently condemned to death. We're going to look at that triad of trials. We can't possibly look at all of the details, but we're going to see the big picture and see how each of these trials is connected and how Each of them reveals the same reality about Jesus, who he is. First point will be Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. Then we will look at Jesus' trial before Herod. And finally, Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. Jesus is in bonds. And the armed men now quickly lead Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane from the Garden of Gethsemane to the place which had become the headquarters of the powers of darkness, the house of the high priest. And they bring him there for a midnight trial, a trial only in name because all of the judges who would assemble there already had their minds made up. Jesus must die. We turn first to John 18. We're going to see that the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin really has three parts to it. And we're going to go through those parts chronologically. And the very first one is recorded in John 18. John 18 verse 13 reveals that Jesus' captors brought him before Annas first. Annas was the high priest 
Emeritus, the former high priest, now retired. He's the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. And it's evident he still held influence and power. In fact, back in Luke 3, verse 2, you will read this. Annas and Caiaphas being high priests. Annas still held such influence that the term high priest was still applied to him, even though he didn't technically hold that office anymore. Now the question is, why is Jesus brought to Annas? The likely explanation is that once Jesus was arrested, the Sanhedrin, the council, had to be assembled at the house of the high priest. And that involved some time getting the men there. And so while they are waiting for the Sanhedrin to assemble, Jesus is brought to Annas for a preliminary interrogation. Verse 19 of John 18 tells us, What Annas asked about. Annas asked about Jesus' disciples and doctrine. And evidently, Annas' purpose in this is he's looking for some sort of incriminating evidence. He wants to get Jesus to say something that would be useful when he comes to trial before the full Sanhedrin. And right there we see that this whole trial is unjust from the start. Jesus was arrested without any charge. And now he stands before Annas And there's still not a charge. In fact, they're looking for something to charge him with. Well, Jesus, in his response to Annas' question, points that out. Jesus says, I preached openly. I didn't say anything in secret. Ask the people who heard me in the synagogue. The people who heard me in the temple, they will tell you what I preached. And that exposed what Annas was doing, undoubtedly humiliated him, which is the reason for the officer standing by, striking Jesus across the face and saying, speakest thou to the high priest in such a way? Annas's preliminary interrogation achieves nothing. And so it is from there, as verse 24 of John 18 tells us, from there, Jesus is brought to Caiaphas, the current high priest. And there at Caiaphas' house, the whole Sanhedrin had been assembled. The Sanhedrin was the chief ruling body of the Jews. It consisted of 71 members drawn from all of the religious sects of the day. The Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, as well as the priests. And the high priest himself always presided over this assembly. The Sanhedrin then was the supreme court of the Jews. It was the supreme court to which all matters of Jewish religion, as well as many civil matters, were brought. The Sanhedrin has now gathered at the house of Caiaphas for one purpose, to find some way to put Jesus to death under the pretense of law. And just a pretense, because everything about this midnight trial that they rapidly assemble to perform, everything about it is illegal. Jewish law forbade trials during the time of the Passover. Did not allow trials at night. Did not allow trials to take place in a private home. The Sanhedrin could only hold its legal proceedings, in its council chamber. But all of those laws are thrown to the wind because the Sanhedrin wants Jesus dead. And so these men who prided themselves with being the meticulous keepers of God's law, they try to put up a pretense of following legal procedure, and that's why they call in all these witnesses. Matthew 26. That's where we have recorded how this trial before the Sanhedrin went. It began with them calling witnesses, false witnesses. And the idea is, these Jewish leaders knew they were false witnesses. They didn't care. They wanted something they could use to condemn Jesus. The problem was none of the witnesses agreed. According to God's law, for a witness's testimony to be valid and able to be used in court as evidence against someone, That testimony had to be confirmed by a second witness. The same testimony had to be found in the mouth of two witnesses. And those witnesses were examined by the Sanhedrin separately, one at a time. And what happened is that though many witnesses came forward, none of their testimonies agreed. The best they could do was find these two witnesses who came to accuse Jesus of 
threatening to break down the temple and build it up again in three days. Taking Jesus' words out of context, Jesus was referring to his body, to his future death and resurrection. But even that availed nothing. And so finally, the Sanhedrin has had it. They're frustrated. They can get nothing against Jesus. And Jesus, throughout the whole trial, doesn't try to defend himself with majestic calm and silence. He stands there. And his silence shows the falsity and the unjustness of all of the proceedings against him. Finally, Caiaphas, as a last resort, puts him under oath. Matthew 26, verse 63. I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Here, Jesus speaks. He replies in verse 64, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark 14, verse 62, gives another striking detail about Jesus' response. Mark 14, verse 62, records this. Jesus says, I am. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? I am. Just as he had said in the Garden of Gethsemane, and laid his captors flat, a revelation of his divine being, his divine power, as the I am that I am, Jehovah in the flesh, Jehovah's salvation, so too Jesus says here in this unjust trial before his enemies, I am. I am the Son of God. And as he had with Judas, Jesus again uses that messianic title, Son of Man. Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus was saying, yes, I am. And though you sit in judgment over me right now, the day is coming when I shall come from my place at the Father's right hand, and I shall preside in judgment over you. Those words of Jesus, those words, Caiaphas, the 70, had heard enough. The high priest takes hold of his priestly robe, and he runs it down the middle, tearing it, Blasphemy, he cries. This Jesus has claimed to be God. He has claimed to be the Christ. Blasphemy. Notice the utter hypocrisy of this whitewashed sepulcher. Though he feigned to be so distraught at the words he heard, in fact, Caiaphas's heart was full of sinister glee. Yes, at last, we got him. Blasphemy. There is a capital offense with which we can charge him. And so he rends his clothes in pretend horror, and he says to his companions in evil, What think ye? And they respond, verse 66, He is guilty of death. No more need for witnesses. No more need for testimony. Case is closed. We got what we want. Blasphemy. He is guilty. He is guilty. Then as Matthew 26 records, the Sanhedrin throwing aside the dignity of their offices, the temple police following their example give vent to their hatred spit upon the Christ and mock him and strike him across the face, even blindfold him, as Luke says, mockingly say unto him, prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is it that strikes thee? So is the trial before the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the church of that day. And so it is that Isaiah 53, verse 7 is fulfilled He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
And that brings us to the third stage of the Sanhedrin's trial. And this is where our text in Luke picks up. The very first part is recorded by John. Matthew 26 records the body of the trial which took place in the middle of the night. And now comes the third part. Luke 22 verse 66. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe, and so forth. Now, there, there is one slightly difficult question concerning the chronology here, because what we read in Luke 22, verses 66 through 70 appears to be, account, to be accounting the same history as we read in Matthew 26. But Matthew, Mark, and John all clearly teach that Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin took place at night, late at night, likely 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. But here in Luke 22, verse 66, we read, And as soon as it was day. How do we resolve what appears to be a contradiction? What I judge to be the best explanation is that Luke here is recording what took place immediately in the morning. The trial before Caiaphas had finished. But then the Jewish leaders had to wait. They intended to bring Jesus to Pilate. And as soon as it was day, they brought Jesus back into the council chamber. And it would make sense that they would go through some of those things that would be their main charge against Jesus. They ask him the question again, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, again, I am. And it's with that that they go forward to bring him to Pilate. And so the third part of his trial before, this, before the Sanhedrin is a review of the things that took place during the night. And then, as Luke says, the whole multitude arose to bring Jesus to Pilate. Likely at the very crack of dawn, 6 a.m. perhaps, as soon as the Roman courts opened. But now, before we proceed in the history, let's take a moment to look at the significance of this first trial in the triad of Jesus' trials. This midnight trial, before the leaders of the Jews, brings to light Jesus' innocence and righteousness. It's done in the middle of the night, under cloak of darkness, in the midst of the hour of the power of darkness. But all that this trial really does is bring to light the splendid, radiant righteousness of our Savior. The Sanhedrin had no case. And you look at the court proceedings recorded in Scripture, and it leaps off the page. The trial was ridiculous. Jesus was arrested without a charge. The judges themselves tried to create the case against him in court. They seek for witnesses. They readily listen to false witnesses. But the false witnesses can't even agree. And finally, in a last-ditch effort, they ask Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he simply tells the truth. I am. For that he is condemned. The whole trial brings to light the righteousness of Christ. And has the opposite effect of exposing the darkness and the wickedness of Christ's judges. The more the Sanhedrin looked for evidence, the more their own wickedness was revealed. God used the counterfeit trial of Jesus Christ to put them on trial and to expose them. It is as Simeon prophesied when Mary first brought the baby Jesus into the temple that this child was set for the rising and falling of many in Israel and that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. In the blazing light of the righteous Christ, the darkness of the hearts of his enemies is revealed. And in that midnight trial, Sanhedrin, the high priest, 
Jesus' most vicious enemies were forced to face the reality of who Jesus is. You see how hard they tried to avoid that question? Who Jesus was? They hated him. They rejected him. Yet they knew what he had done. They had heard his preaching. They had seen even some of his miracles. And there was no way that they could completely suppress that knowledge. This was no mere man. This was no mere troublemaker from Galilee. They tried as hard as they could to avoid the reality that this man before them was the Christ. And that's why they tried to find any other reason to condemn him. But God would not let that happen. God sovereignly orchestrated every aspect of this trial so that these men were faced with the question, this is my Christ, what will you do with him? And their answer is, condemn and kill him. They sentence Jesus to death. For what? For telling the truth about who he is. For being the Christ. For being the Christ. He is worthy of death, they say. And with that sentence of the Sanhedrin, you have the Old Testament church, its institution, the outward form of that church, and the apostate and reprobate in it, which had become so numerous, you have the decisive rejection by them of the Messiah of God. Indeed, he came unto his own, as John 1.11 said, but his own received him not. Here Jesus is condemned by the court of the church of that day, that he might save his elect church. We see in the Sanhedrin what we are by nature. We see in the Sanhedrin what the church is by nature. We see Jesus, the true high priest, sentenced to death by the Old Testament high priest. What a travesty. And yet Jesus suffers this condemnation that he might bear the sins of his people and redeem his true church, his unworthy church. Who like the disciples so often forsake him and reject him. What a wonder of grace. What a brilliant light the Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst of the hour of darkness. The next in Jesus' triad of trials is one which is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And that's Jesus' trial before Herod. And we use that word trial very loosely. Because you can't really call it a trial when you see what happened in Herod's court. Jesus' trial before Herod took place in the middle of Jesus' trial before Pilate. It was kind of an intermission. But since it took place before Pilate's final verdict, we're going to look at his trial before Herod as the second point of the sermon. Luke tells us how Jesus ends up before that hedonistic tyrant, Herod. At the crack of dawn, the Sanhedrin rushed Jesus off to the judgment hall of the governor Pontius Pilate. They wanted to get Jesus condemned and dead as soon as possible before people could really comprehend what was going on. Now, John 18, verse 28, tells us that the Sanhedrin, many of them who went to Pilate, did not enter into his judgment hall. They were afraid of making themselves ceremonially unclean. They would be unclean if they entered into the residence of a Gentile during the Passover feast. And they wanted to be able to continue to participate in the festivities of the Passover feast. Now, see again the hypocrisy of these whitewashed sepulchers. They're straining at gnats and swallowing a camel. They're going to Pilate to stain their hands in the innocent blood of the Son of God. And they're concerned about avoiding ceremonial defilement by entering the house of a Gentile. That was the spiritual condition of these teachers in Israel. Shows to what terrible depths external, heartless, self-righteous, proud religion Leads. Warning. We must be humble. 
Not like these scribes and Pharisees. Humble people. Not legalistic. Not focused on the external, but the heart. The heart. Pilate goes out to them. He had to. Much of the Sanhedrin was knocking at his door, and people were gathering, wondering what's going on at the governor's residence. A large portion of our leaders are there, and so a crowd is developing. Pilate has to go out to them, and so he goes out to them and he says, What accusation bring ye against this man? It was evident they were bringing Jesus for trial. And Luke 23, verse 2, gives the three accusations that the Jewish leaders initially set before Pilate. Luke 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Notice something. What happened to the charge of blasphemy on account of which they deemed him worthy of death? Not a word is mentioned. And so the charge, on account of which they bring him to Pilate, that's dropped. And now they throw out these other things. What injustice. But we understand why. Pilate's not going to care about blasphemy. He's going to throw that out of court. They have to bring something that is going to pique Pilate's interest and concern. They need to portray Jesus as an enemy of the Roman state. And that's what they do. And they blatantly lie. This this man, he's seditious. He's spreading trouble. He's endangering the good order of Roman rule. Which, of course, was a lie. Jesus taught submit to the civil authorities. A blatant lie when they refer to taxes. You go back to Luke 20, Tuesday of the Passion Week. And what happens there? The scribes and the Pharisees go to Jesus and they're tempting him. They're trying to catch him in his words and they say, Master, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? Luke 20 verse 25 has Jesus' answer and we all know the answer. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Blatant lie. And they say this man claims to be Christ the King. He's a king. He says he's a king. That's a threat to Caesar. Notice here too, the astonishing dishonesty. These men knew that Jesus did not claim to be an earthly king. In fact, that's one of the reasons they rejected him. They did not want a Messiah who was a savior from sin, who came to build a spiritual kingdom. They wanted a Messiah who was going to kick Pontius Pilate out of Judea. Jesus was not that, and they hated him for it. But now these men bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, and they accuse him of being what he's not, but what they wished he was, in order to get him condemned by the very government They want kicked out of Judea. It's astonishing. We see the depths of their hatred, their madness. And that's the sinful nature and its view of Christ. There we see what the catechism means when it says, by nature we're prone to hate God. That's what hatred looks like. It's mad, mad. That was the Jewish leaders. Well, Pilate takes Jesus into the judgment hall to question him. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, thou sayest it. That's Luke's account. And John 18 gives a fuller account of what went on. Jesus told Pilate, according to John, my kingdom is not of this world or else my servants would fight. Look, none of my servants are fighting to keep me from being arrested or brought before you. Jesus was making the point, my kingdom is not earthly, spiritual. Pilate saw that. Pilate knew that. And so Pilate comes back out. He sees in Jesus no threat to Rome. As Matthew 27 verse 18 says, Pilate readily perceived that the Jews delivered him for envy. And so in verse 4 of Luke 23, he says to the accusers, I find no fault in this man. There's the verdict. The case should be closed. There's the verdict. No fault. But now the Jewish leaders 
fearing that their chance is slipping away, Luke says they were the more fierce. They hurl out accusations at Jesus. No, this man is perverting all of Jewry. He started in Galilee, where he's from, all the way to this point. And Pilate stops him there. Galilee. Ah, that's Herod's territory. And Herod happens to be in town for the feast. Here's a chance for Pilate to push this case off his shoulders. And so he sends Jesus, as verse 7 says, sends him to Herod. And this is how Herod, or rather this is how Jesus ends up in Herod's court for the second trial. This Herod is not the Herod who killed the children of Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. The Herod mentioned in Luke here is Herod Antipas. Herod the Great's son. This is the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. We know he was a pleasure-loving man. He was a wicked man. He was the man who had his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And this Herod had for a long time wanted to see Jesus. In Luke 9, verses 7-9, through 9, you can read about that, how when Herod heard about Jesus' miracles and preaching, he thought John the Baptist had risen from the dead, and he wanted to see him. And that's why Luke says, when Jesus arrives at Herod's palace, Herod is exceeding glad. And that gladness is exceeding sinful. He didn't care who Jesus was. He wasn't interested in carrying out what Pilate sent Jesus there for, a trial. That was his chance to have his curiosity satisfied. And so, he wants to see some miracle of Jesus. He treats Jesus like a court magician. Show me a sign. But Because he had to put Jesus on trial, Luke says he questioned Jesus for a little while while the Jewish leaders vehemently accused him. But when it became clear to, to Herod that Jesus wasn't going to give him what he wanted, he quickly lost interest and decided, I'll just have some sport with this man. And so Herod and his soldiers set Jesus at naught. They mocked him. They dressed him in a royal robe and mocked his kingship and then sent him back to Pilate. Now, Luke 23, verse 12, mentions a very strange reconciliation that came out of this. In Luke 23, verse 12, we read this. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For before, they were at enmity between themselves. You might wonder, what is that talking about? Well, it appears that Herod and Pilate had a political dispute. And that would make sense. Herod is the king of a certain region. He was a tetrarch. But Pilate was the governor appointed by Caesar. And their powers overlapped in certain areas. And so it appears that they had some quarrel over their power and their jurisdiction. And Pilate, by sending Jesus to Herod, it was taken as a a sign of respecting Herod's jurisdiction over the affairs of Galilee. And Herod, in sending Jesus back to Pilate, was a gesture showing he respected Pilate's ultimate authority and would abide by whatever decision Pilate made. Really what you have here is two politicians flattering each other. That makes sense. But, The spiritual reality that comes out here is we see this. Nothing unites fallen man like opposition to the Christ of God. And so it will be at the end. With the rise of Antichrist, what will unite man? Opposition to God and his truth. And that's what we see here. Pilate and Herod, formerly enemies, united against the Christ of God. But before we proceed to the last trial, we need to note a couple things that are significant about Jesus' trial before Herod. First, we see Jesus' innocence again. Herod doesn't uncover anything against Jesus. He questions him. The Jews accuse him, but nothing comes of it. Jesus is righteous. But now, The second significance to see is that in Herod's court, there is a great Passion Week battle that takes place between the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent. And that comes out when we 
see who Herod is and what he represents. Herod is not just a tyrant. He was an Idumean, that is, a descendant of Esau. There's a spiritual dynamic here. Herod represents the reprobate seed of the serpent that emerged out of the sphere of the covenant and which is opposed to the seed of the woman. Herod represents Satan's usurper. Herod is king in Israel. He sits on the throne as a usurper. Satan has his man on the throne. And Satan here is seeking to deprive the seed of the woman of his birthright. That's what's going on. This is the hour of darkness. Satan is laboring to destroy the Christ. And Herod's mockery of Jesus, his mockery of Jesus' kingship, behind it is the devil himself, assaulting and tempting the Lord to use his power, to give a sign, to do something. The devil thinks he has Christ in his grasp. And the devil is mocking the Christ through Herod. Mocking Christ's kingship. Look at the promised seed of the woman. On his way to death. The promise. The promise is for naught. But Jesus fights that battle. with His calm majestic silence. Not returning railing for railing. Submitting to his father's will. He has taken the cup. And he holds fast that cup. He won't give that cup up until he goes to the cross to drink the cup. No mockery. No assault of the devil. Will cause him to waver from that path. Silence and submission to the father's will. He goes forward into the deepening darkness of that hour. In which he. In the most amazing way. He. Not the devil. He will triumph. And the covenant promise will be shown not to be for naught. For through the death of the seed of the woman, the serpent's head is crushed and redemption is brought to God's people. That was the dynamic in Herod's court. But now, come to the last Jesus is brought back to Pilate for final judgment. And a final sentence must be delivered. Pilate, Luke 23 verse 4, had already said, I find no fault in this man. But his hope of making Herod do the dirty work didn't pan out. Now Pilate has to make a judgment. Pilate doesn't conclude the case. He's indecisive. He doesn't want to condemn Jesus because he sees so clearly that Jesus is innocent. And yet he wants to appease the Jews. And so he enters into reasoning with the people. And now what follows in the rest of our text in Luke 23 is Pilate's three attempts to try to release Jesus. And according to the sovereign determination of God, those attempts fail. And bring Pilate to the point where he, though though rendering the verdict that Jesus is innocent, yet delivers him to be crucified. Pilate calls the leaders of the people together. That's verse 13 of Luke 23. And then three times he tries to release Jesus. First, Pilate offers to scourge Jesus and let him go. That's verses 14 through 16. Pilate says, look, I've examined him before you all. I've found no fault in him. I will chastise him and let him go. Pilate perceived that the envy and hatred against the Jew, of the Jews against Jesus was fierce. And he hoped that if he inflicted some sort of punishment on Jesus, that would satisfy them. Of course, that's unjust. He knows Jesus is innocent. Jesus doesn't deserve to be scourged. And that's what it was. Whipping. A very painful and horrible punishment. But the Jews will have nothing of it. And so second, Pilate appeals to the custom that there was in the day of the governor releasing a prisoner during the Passover feast. 
Luke 37, or rather Luke 23, verse 17, makes mention of that, even saying that it was necessary that a prisoner be released. This was one of the Roman customs of the day, a concession of the Romans to the often rebellious Jews to try to pacify them, that during the Passover feast, the governor would give them a prisoner, release to them a prisoner. The governor would nominate, and from the nominees, the people would choose. And so Pilate hatches a plan here. He gives the Jews a double slate, two men to choose from. On the one hand, Barabbas. On the other hand, Jesus, who is called Christ. And this Barabbas, he was in jail because he was a seditious man and a murderer. He's the last kind of guy you want on the streets again. Surely, surely, the people will pick Jesus. But while this is going on, the chief priests, and Satan through them, are whispering in the ears of the people, stirring them up. So that as Pilate presents the nominees for release, the people with one accord shout, Barabbas, release unto us Barabbas. Pilate, who must have been stunned, asks, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Verse 21 of the text, they cried, Crucify him! Crucify him! Here's what the people, here's what the people will do with the Christ of God. Crucify him! No longer Hosanna! No longer blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! They, like Judas, have come to see who Jesus is and they don't want him. Or led astray by their wicked leaders. One accord, they cry, crucify the Christ. Pilate makes one last attempt. Verse 22. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But the people, instant with loud voices, required that he might be crucified. Verse 23 says, The voices of them and the chief priests prevailed. Then happens what we find recorded In Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25, Pilate, seeing that he cannot prevail, and giving ear to the threats of the people as they cry out, as John 19 records, you're no friend of Caesar if you let go a man who claims to be a king. Pilate places a bowl of water before the eyes of the gathered multitude. He dips his hands into that water washes his hands and says, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. This just person. Notice the verdict that he pronounced all the way back in Luke 23 verse 4. That hasn't changed throughout this whole ordeal. Pilate can say nothing against Jesus. He found no fault. This just person. And yet, Pilate sacrifices justice for political expediency and for his own neck. He knows what trouble the Jews could cause him, especially if word got back to Rome that Pilate let a man go who claimed to be a king and could potentially threaten Caesar's power in the region. Pilate sacrifices justice for his own security and to appease the Jews. And knowingly declares, innocent, but yours to crucify. People are glad. Chief priests are glad. Everyone's glad, it seems, to take the Christ of God to Golgotha. What's the significance of this last 
in the triad of Jesus' trials. Well, it brings out the same truth, which has been the theme we've been tracing. Jesus is innocent and yet condemned to death. Does not his righteousness blaze forth like the noonday sun here? The religious leaders could find nothing wrong. Pontius Pilate, the unbelieving Roman governor, finds no fault in him. The whole of the history declares Jesus is the perfectly righteous one. That's who he is. The sinless, obedient, suffering servant of Jehovah who is innocently condemned to death. Why? Not for his own sins. He has no sins to die for. Is it just a tragic travesty of human justice? There's something more going on here. Something more. The perfect man stands in your place and mine. The perfect man stands as our substitute, as our sin bearer. He stands in the tribunal of God, burdened with all of your sins and mine. And though he is personally sinless, yet for your sins and mine, he is condemned before the judgment seat of God. Though he is innocent, he is sentenced to the death penalty that you and I deserve, so that we, we who are guilty, might be justly acquitted at the judgment seat of God. The significance is that we see in this Jesus going forth to make atonement for our sins, that we might be justified and constituted heirs of eternal life. So that Romans 8 verse 1 could one day be written. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So that the Apostle Paul could go on to write, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. There's the significance. Jesus is innocently condemned to death. That we may justly be acquitted at the judgment seat. God. We see world, church, people, government, Everything unite against the Christ. You see the people desire a murderer before the Christ. Jesus is numbered here with the worst of transgressors. That he might deliver you and me, transgressors. From our judgment. And give us eternal life. Jesus' trials. Show us our salvation. So beloved. What will you do. With Christ. That's the question. That was faced by all involved in this triad of trials. What will you do with the Christ of God. By nature. Our voices would be among the chorus. Crucify him, crucify him. But by grace, our voices are among a different chorus. Praise him, thank him, glorify him for what he has done. His blood is upon us. But not in the horrible way that the Jews said, let his blood be upon us and our children. His blood is upon us because the gracious hand of God has applied it to us to wash away our sins Worked in our heart by His Spirit to give us love for this Christ. The Lamb of God, our Passover, delivered unto death for us. What do you do with the Christ of God? By grace, embrace Him by faith, trust Him, love Him, adore Him, hope in Him, await Him.
And in the midst of this dark world, never stop crying out, praise be to the Christ of God. So now we come to that point in the history where all that is left for Jesus is to drink that cup at Calvary. And that's where we go Good Friday. See him drink that cup for your salvation and mine. What a Savior is ours in Christ. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this blessed word of the Gospel. That Jesus, though innocent, was condemned to death. That we, who are guilty in ourselves, might be justly acquitted at Thy judgment seat. May our admiration and our love for Christ grow as we see what He has done for us. Bless this word to our hearts. That we may go forth walking by faith in this our Savior. Hear us in his name. Amen.